If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast and would like to support this kind of independent journalism, then please do consider supporting us on Patreon, and you can find us at patreon.com slash Shreya Kaldra. Welcome to the Nth Dimension. Thanks so much for being here as always, and happy 2021, folks. How happy am I to be back in my room, my quarter, which is my recording room, as the pandemic continues. I have no official studio to record from, but the four beautiful walls of my room. And I'm very excited to be coming back and talking about a whole host of progressive political ideas. Um, But this year, my aim will be to focus my stories more with a solutions-oriented lens on them. Because while it is very important to shed light on the various problems that exist in our society and our communities and spread awareness, I think it is equally pertinent to also talk about solutions because that is what empowers people. And instead of creating, instead of contributing to the doom and gloom scenario that news anyways does to us, I hope to be I hope to offer more solutions on this podcast. So that will be my aim for 2021. So on that note, today's episode is on how Bhutan is a carbon negative country. And I'm so, so, so excited to be sharing this episode with you because obviously I'm recording this intro after my conversation with Kinley Dorji, who is a professor of environmental science in Bhutan, and he lives uh, and teaches in Thimpu. And I spoke to him just a week ago, and not only did the conversation blow my mind, obviously, but just learning about how that country functions, I'm just absolutely mesmerized and of course when you listen to the podcast you're going to find out more about Bataan and how they have managed to stay a carbon negative country always. I learned that it is not something that they have achieved but it is something that they have always done and it's a part of their country. So you're going to find out more about that. But So for those of you who don't know much about Bhutan, I'll quickly tell you that Bhutan is a very small country nestled between India and China, and it's in the Himalayan region, and very little is known about that country. We don't find out much about it because people are happy and peaceful, so it's a good thing almost that we don't hear much about that country. Um, But maybe two things that you have heard about Bataan is that it has a gross national happiness, which measures the happiness of its people. So you'll often hear Bhutan in the top uh, set of countries where people are very happy. And you'll probably hear Bhutan in the context of climate change for its very progressive climate policies. And just learning about Bhutan, honestly, I am... I, I want... I'm wondering why more countries are not, more countries and more leaders are not looking to the east or west, depending on where you're at, and wanting to study that country to figure out how it has achieved all that it has. Um, A fun fact that blew me away was the fact that Jeff Bezos is worth more than Bhutan's entire economy. Yet, Bhutan manages to give people free education, free health care. They have no homelessness, and anyone who 
for whatever reason, does experience uh, homelessness, is given a piece of land and a home to, to survive from. So very progressive policies in that country. And I hope that anyone who listens to this episode shares it, please do share it because there's just so much crazy information in this podcast about the different cross stitches of leadership and spirituality Buddhism and community and economics and political that has made Bhutan into the country that it is today. And I think just so many people and leaders can stand to benefit from from this tiny little country nestled between two very populated and, so to speak, crazy nations. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. And here we go. Today's episode is on how Bhutan is a carbon-negative country in conversation with Kinley Dorji. But, okay, I should just tell you, I think we're wearing similar clothes. Look, I'm also wearing a green turtleneck sweater. Isn't that coincidental? Can you see it? Yeah, 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 I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I understand, like we we are in a very cold place. And we also have the same can... hairstyle going. <laughs> 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 Coincidental serendipity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, okay, I'll get this started. So in our country, it would be considered very auspicious. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> that we're wearing similar clothes, eh? <laughs> yeah, we would consider it very auspicious. I think it's very auspicious. <laughs> Serendipity, right? Uh, we, yeah. yeah. We we are on a similar wavelength at the moment, so so interesting. <laughs> I should just tell you also, I wear this. Uh, I don't know how it is in. <laughs> this is embarrassing because you don't know me, but it's cold here, right? As it is in Bhutan. Uh, are you in Thimphu? Yeah. yeah, I'm in Thimphu. Okay, I'm, I'm assuming it's relatively similarly cold where we are. So I wore this exact I... same thing yesterday, and I was yeah. like, I'm not going to be washing this now, so I'll just wear it. Because <laughs> 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 it's winter. <laughs> but I'm glad I did. <laughs> Embarrassing, but it's the truth. <laughs> Anyways, okay, here we go. Um, Welcome to the Nth Dimension. Uh, today we are going to be talking about how did Bhutan reach carbon negative and I'm very excited to be talking to someone sitting in Bhutan at the moment, uh, Mr. Kinley Dorji. So hi Kinley and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for hi. adjusting the time and talking to me. Thank you for having me. Forward to having a very intriguing conversation. <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly excited. When we were just chatting just now. I, t I mentioned that I was when I was doing my research, I was just excited to to see that a country exists that's solution oriented. But obviously, like you said yourself, maybe the internet doesn't allow for a lot of nuance sometimes. So we'll obviously dig into that. Um, but first, can you quickly just tell us how you're related to the environmental world? Mm -hmm. uh Thank you for having me. Uh, just like you introduced, uh, I'm Kinle Dorji. And uh, I have uh, my educational background from environmental uh, studies. I did my master's in environmental sciences. And uh, currently, I lecture in one of the 
uh, colleges in our country. It's actually a private college, uh, relatively small compared to the universities in your place or in some other area. Uh, but I can say it is one of the biggest college in our country. <laughs> uh, I lectured there in the Department of Environmental Management. And actually that is how I uh, am related to the field of environment. Amazing. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, I also uh, do researches and uh, other kind of studies in this environmental field. But uh, my interest does not uh, particularly stick with environmental field. Uh, I have uh, a, a wide range of uh, interests. I am very interested in studying philosophy. I'm very much interested in studying uh, uh, science, that is, I mean, uh, hardcore science. Uh, wow. I, 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 I fancy actually this astrophysics <laughs> a lot. <laughs> you, you and um, I have a lot to talk about. I, I, I love, <laughs> I, I know very little about science, but I love, uh, learning about physics because it teaches so much about like it answers a lot of existential questions for me yeah so i think i think that is i think that is where my interest uh, comes from um, it helps me answering uh, the multitude of questions that i have so i think that's all about myself <laughs> <laughs> excellent well you're multifaceted uh human and clearly curious about the world so always a good place to start from. But, um, so let's talk about Bhutan, because, you know, when we first spoke on the phone, I think one of the first things I remember telling you is that we hear very little about your country. And, you know, in your introduction, you, you said, you know, the college might be small compared to Canada, but you also have, what, 700,000 people in an entire country. So yeah. as compared to here, we, where we have millions of people. So there, there, there are those differences, of course. But mm -hmm. um, we hear very little about Bhutan, even though it's squished between two huge countries, India and China. And mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're on the world map for many good and bad reasons. They're notorious and they're, they're also famous. They're populated <laughs> and they're just, they're crazy to say the least and i'm from india i've spent many many years of my life there obviously um so i can you know i, I say this from my own experience as well um but yes tell us about bhutan because i know nothing about it other than the fact that uh that you guys are apparently very happy and that you have achieved carbon negative which the rest of the world is trying to do okay uh Firstly, to talk about uh, my country, uh, it is very true that uh, not much is uh, known about our country. Uh, it's, it could be because of uh, two reasons. First one, our country started to open up uh, very late. Internet came to our country only in uh, 1990s. And that, is, that could be the first reason. And second reason could be uh, we are a very small country. And we have a very small population, just like you mentioned, uh, we have a little more than 700,000. Actually, I don't like to mention the 700,000 because uh, almost all the countries around the world, they talk about their population yeah. in millions. So I refer to, uh, like I refer to the total uh, population of my country as little shy of a million. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, our country is a very small country. 
and we have a very small population. That could be another reason. And uh, geographically, uh, Bhutan is located in the eastern side of the Himalayan range, sandwiched between two giant nations, China in the north and India to the south. And, uh, uh, and something to uh, talk about uh, the kind of culture that we have, uh, Bhutan actually has a mosaic of uh, cultural beliefs, a cultural system. Although a very small country, we have different cultural, uh, uh, cultural, uh, different culture and then smaller societies. And uh, uh, predominantly, our culture is uh, entrenched in uh, Buddhist belief, uh, beliefs, Buddhist uh, belief system. We call it Tibetan Buddhism or mm -hmm. uh, we call it Mahayana Buddhism. So our belief system, our culture, our spirituality, it's influenced by this Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, almost uh, 70 to 80% of our, our country's population is Buddhist. And then we have Hindu as well. So we have a very uh, close connection with the connection shared by Buddhist and Hindus, and then maybe smaller uh, minority of other religious uh, belief as well. Mm. And uh, to get to, uh, uh, the topic of uh, carbon negativity. You mentioned uh, saying that Bhutan achieved a carbon negative uh, status, but I would say, just like I mentioned last time, I would say Bhutan has always been carbon negative. Yes, you it's not mention. something that we have achieved. It's something that we have always been. Right. So we have always been carbon negative, and it could uh, and it can be attributed to different uh, multiple reasons that uh, we will talk about in a while. Mm -hmm. So today, uh, to, to give you a glimpse or to give you a little uh, detail about uh, uh, the status of carbon negativity in our country, I can say Bhutan produces around uh, 2.2 uh, uh, million tons of uh, carbon dioxide and our forest costs us around 6.3 million uh, carbon dioxide. So in that way, we are actually we have a huge gap between the amount of carbon dioxide we produce and the amount of carbon dioxide we take in. So in that way, we are carbon negative. Um, and so, uh, to talk about, oh, yes, yes, please go on. No, I'm just curious that that's a very interesting like nuance that you have always been, nothing that has been achieved. And why do you think that is the case? Because, when you did open up your country, uh, was it opened up in the 1990s or earlier? Or internet came in the 1990s? Yeah, our developmental, uh, developmental uh, activity started in 1950s and 60s. So when you did open up, like the rest of the world, for example, when India opened up, it automatically went down the, uh, you know, the traditional free market route. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and thought that we're going to lift people out of poverty through the free market, which that's a whole other debate, has or has not worked. Similarly, China, uh, it's a communist but a capitalist country. So anyways, like all around the world, your neighbors included, like opening up apparently means you go the free market route um, and you quote unquote develop. But how come Bhutan didn't choose that? Um, and I personally don't like to use the word develop in this way because when I was reading about Bhutan, 
many times people uh, on the internet, it was written underdeveloped, but that's up to debate what development means. So if, you know, people are, have homes, food, they're, you know, spiritually um, evolving, they're taking care of one another, there's community, like that's also development, which we don't have here, or we may not have, we don't have in India. So all this to ask you, like when Bhutan did open up, how come it didn't go crazy in industrialization? Okay, a very interesting question. Uh, uh, to talk about uh, the development, uh, the kind of uh, developmental paradigm that we have chosen, uh, I'll give you a brief uh, backdrop of uh, things that have happened over time in our country once uh, after uh, Bhutan opened up to the world. Uh, the developmental activities started only in 1950, 50s and in 60s. But uh, you should also know that uh, Bhutan is a very small nation. And if we look at our country uh, from geographical point of view, we are a mountainous country and then we have a very uh, steep terrain and then we have a lot of torrential rivers. So uh, in that way, our country also doesn't let uh, us to completely open up for uh, establishing huge industries or bringing in, I don't know, like crazy materialistic developmental activities. That is one thing. And the second thing is, but it doesn't mean that we cannot do that. We have actually, our country is also uh, best with, uh, it's blessed with a lot of resources. We have water resources, very rich forest resources. We also have mineral resources and all. But when the developmental activities started, uh, our leaders, we are actually a uh, uh, democratic constitutional monarchy. We have a king, but we also have uh, elected prime minister and the government. Uh, and it started in 2008. Before that, we were uh, absolute monarchy. Yes. So when the developmental uh, activities started, our kings, actually they were very mindful of uh, the negative ill impacts of this development, what we call development. And just like you mentioned, yes, we are a very poor country. We are underdeveloped country. And uh, in terms of maybe in terms of, uh, yeah, in terms of financial, uh, in terms of financial uh, capitalistic kind of uh, view from capitalist kind of view, we are underdeveloped. But uh, our leaders, they were very mindful about our developmental uh, activities the kind of uh, developmental paradigm that they chose were quite different from uh, the kind of uh, developmental paradigm chosen by other countries around the world. So from the very beginning, we were very mindful about pursuing a middle path. We like to call it a middle path. Buddhism. We don't... That's Buddhism. Yeah, don't... Yes, <laughs> Buddhism. It's influence. It has actually a huge influence from Buddhism. So we our country has been pursuing a middle path. So we are very mindful about the extremes. And we have pursued a middle path. And in that way, we have our own kind of a developmental paradigm called cross-national happiness that you would have heard for so many times. So I think uh, this philosophy of cross-national happiness has actually made us very vigilant in terms of pursuing this developmental activity.
But I can say that you were also mentioning we are very happy. Yeah, I is can that, say is that fact happy. or myth? Okay, it's a fact. It can be. It can get quite cynical as well. I don't know. Of course. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think it depends on how we define happiness. I don't think happiness can be uh, offered or offered to people like uh, a piece of chocolate. So we believe that happiness cannot be offered or given to uh, any country's citizen, but a country can always uh, create an environment where happiness can grow. Wow, I like so, that. So that is, I think, what we believe in. And then I think that is why our government has always uh, 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 looked at bringing in all the social measures, necessities that will enhance the growth of happiness. So in that way, looking from the kind of materialistic, uh, materialistic developmental uh, pursuit that we have is very different from the kind of societal development, the development which should, uh, which should actually lead to a societal development. Like you mentioned, how satisfied are our people? How are they actually utilizing the, uh, the, the little resources that we have? to gain the maximum uh, profit or a gain, or how we are actually indeed looking into ourselves to find what we are looking for in our life. But and is there an environment I, of that? Is there a broader environment of that? I think uh, it depends on so many things. I think it depends on so many things. But uh, uh, the researchers have shown that uh, the environment the kind of environment that we live in has actually a huge impact on the kind of uh, satisfaction, the level of satisfaction that we gain, the, the, the kind of, uh, or how happy we are. So and Also perhaps the kind of questions you ask, you know? One of the things that I was thinking about, I was looking at images of Bhutan, um, and I should also tell you, when I was living in India, I, have, I wanted to travel to Bhutan, but it was just so expensive to travel there <laughs> and that, that I was like, never mind, <laughs> like, I can, my pockets can't afford this at the moment. Because it's actually very easy to get from India to Bhutan. You can also drive and fly, I'm sure you know. Anyways, but um, when I was looking at images, I thought that the fact that you're, that a country is literally built in in a mountain like like you said you it's a very mountainous country obviously it's nestled yes. in the himalayas and i think i feel that as someone who like i live in a city all around me i see like tall buildings i only see the, a, a a human made world like what we have constructed how and and when you are constantly living in this world you're only seeing tall glass buildings and um, the fruits of a very like capitalist system, you forget that there is something called nature that you're taking from. And however, like when you go, if I go traveling or whatever, and you see like a blanket of stars, you're mm -hmm. automatically reminded of the fact that I'm automatically reminded of the fact that I'm just like a little ant in the universe, you know, and that, like that props up a lot of questions, right? Like, 
what am I doing here? What's my purpose? Like, what's, what, like, what, what are my goals for? Brings up a lot of these questions. But if you're constantly living in an environment where you can see how you have to survive in a mountain, in a mountainous region, your survival instincts are more primal, I would, I would imagine. Um, and you can, you also see what can happen if the environment unleashes itself on you. Um, and just like being surrounded by pristine, like untouched nature can also just make you value what you have. Right. So I was just thinking about whether all of these things have something to do with the fact that your monarchy also took a wise decision because, um, you know, most human beings are, we have universal like emotions and values and one would imagine that they would want to retain power and not make it a democratic country. So yes. what, are, what, are, what are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, very interesting question. Uh, first thing, uh, like you mentioned, uh, we are a very small country and uh, we have very small population and uh, uh, just to go by uh, figures, uh, the size of our country is around 14,800 square miles. And if we have to talk in terms of uh, population to the, the total space density, uh, in a square mile, we have around 28 people living. So that is wow. relatively sparse, actually. That's very relatively yeah. sparse. So in that way, we have a lot of space for trees and... <laughs> other 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 things to occupy uh, to get to your question to get to your question now i agree on uh, the the role of environment uh, in the, the personal uh, individual pursuit of uh, meaning finding a meaning in our life but uh, if you really look what i believe if you really look into uh, individual pursuit what do, we, what do we want at the end of the day is we want to be happy, I think. Wonderful. And I think that happiness also comes from an identity that we look for or that we uh, search inside as well as outside surrounding ourselves. So if you have to talk about, uh, if you have to talk about uh, the, the, the role of environment in uh, personal well-being or societal well-being, uh, we can look at it from, I think, a very holistic point of view. So just like you mentioned, uh, human uh, need is uh, it's varied. And we also uh, go around uh, looking for answers that we, uh, answers to the questions that we have. But if you have to go down to a bottom line, I would say that uh, human being always, the, the well-being of a human being always depends on certain uh, critical elements in the society. One thing could be living standard. We would like to have a good food to eat. We would like to have a good shelter to live in. And second thing is uh, we would like to have a very robust kind of health system. So we would like to, thing is, uh, we also would like to uh, have some kind of societal value, which actually helps 
us define that we are a part of society so that we can say i belong to this society and from that belongingness we can also get some kind of identity and most of all uh, psychological well-being is very important and more than psychological well-being i think psychological persuasions of meaning in life is very important very important trying to understand where we come from what we are or what we are uh, supposed to do and i think all this kind of questions can be actually nurtured by a kind of education system that we have in the society and in our country uh, i can say with confidence that almost all the people living in our country they are intricately bound to their society they have a very strong we have a very strong social capital so and our belief system or our cultural uh, belief system is entrenched in uh, the principles like uh, uh, faith respect love and care so from these we also uh, have the qualities like altruism we are coming wow. to the leadership that you were talking about so i think uh, and and an epitome of this altruism altruistic behavior is actually uh, showcased by the, the 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 monarchies that we had in the past for example uh, the fourth king we are under fifth king now but our fourth king he abdicated his throne in in uh, abdicated his throne so that he can uh, pass it to his son so he did not want to be a king anymore so he gave his throne to his son and then wow. that was when he also gave us or they uh, that was when he also imposed on bhutanese citizen the democratic kind of government system we never asked for the need of democracy in our country we were very happy then with the monarchical system but the fourth king he abdicated his throne and then he also gave us a democratic system now we are a democratic constitutional monarchy so i think these are some of the examples of the values that we have but just like you mentioned again just like you mentioned uh, uh we live in a very mountainous country and we are surrounded by i can say pristine envir- natural environment we have a very clean water we have uh, 72% of our country is uh, under forest cover and from that point of view i think you were saying that uh, our uh, Uh, we would be a little primitive in nature i think again it will depend on how you define primitive and how you define uh, i don't know like modernized or well developed yeah. human being so i would say we are developing and so many changes are starting to come we can see so many changes happening in our country but i can say some of the very prominent cultural beliefs cultural values we stick we still have all these values and uh, cultural uh, beliefs and values and i think that is what is keeping us uh, bound together i think that is what is keeping us resilient and strong but again not everything is uh, well in the paradise uh, so many we have so many problems like uh, 
so tell me two things. What, what are the changes that are coming? And when you, earlier you also said that we are a poor country. I think I also want you to say what you mean by that because most people have very strict definition and visual of what poor looks like. And I'm, I'm not sure if that is your definition of poor. Um, I, I have no idea whether or not poverty of the kind that exists in India exists in Bhutan. So why don't you tell us that? And also what kind of changes? And also um, de demystify Bhutan because everything you said, so I, I idealistic, right? What, when I read um, Plato's Republic, I read it for school and it just like stuck in my mind. Have you read it? Excellent book, yeah. right? One of the things that the book mentions is that a good leader uh, will be one that doesn't want to be a leader. It, it, they will be one who, they, they are doing it because it is the right thing to do. And when you were talking about your king, it automatically took me back to that book because your, your fourth king didn't want to be in that position, apparently, and um, wanted to impose democratic rule for the people. I don't know, maybe foreseeing what may happen in the future, um, but, but abdicating his throne because it was apparently the right thing to do. And then I also, there's so many like questions, nuances in what you're saying. Like, I look at India and I look at China, two very ancient countries and two countries that are, um, I don't want to say spiritual, but they have strong religious tentacles. Um, yes, you know, Buddhism was born out of Hinduism. The two religions are very interconnected. And I can't speak for China, but I can speak for India, where everywhere you go, like you see that people, there are temples everywhere, like every household, most households are performing religious activity in some way or the other. It's rooted in Hinduism to worship everything, like tree, insects, animals, like we worship everything in Hinduism, uh, in the text at least. So how is it that, like, how is it that your leaders were able to stay true to the tenets of Buddhism and use the philosophy of compassion and altruism and treating one another with love and respect and middle path, and which is such an important idea in Buddhism. And we weren't. Like, why is it that in India wasn't or China wasn't or other Christian countries weren't? Like, all religions preach goodness. So how is it that your country was able to take such a mindful path to, to make sure that everyone is well? And in that also answer, like, what is the de demystify also? <laughs> Thank you. I think uh, there are four to five questions. Yes. <laughs> I can't seem to ask just for one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, to start with uh, my definition of poor mm -hmm. uh, that you asked me, uh, I was actually trying to use this term poor, underdeveloped, from uh, the world viewpoint, uh, for example, the World Bank. Mm -hmm. 
or we have our own Asian Development Bank here in Asia, uh, or we we do have so many other well-known, renowned uh, economic institutions. And when we read their reports, when we look at the kind of policies, frameworks, the kind of uh, legislation that they uh, frame, they tend to use these uh, words like poor, underdeveloped, developed, developing. And I don't know on what basis they use it, but I am very sure that they are using from a point of view that it measures the financial capital of a country. Yeah. So they directly equate uh, this development uh, with the uh, the gross domestic product. So when we talk about when we talk about a poor something to do with poverty that you mentioned, mm-hmm. yes, we do have uh, we do have poverty in our country. Uh, in two thousand and eight, uh, our poverty was uh, at around twenty four percent. It went down to twelve uh, percent. Now we have little more than eight percent of our population living. What does that mean, living in poverty? Are they, yeah. when I was researching, I read that there's zero hope, percent homelessness. And yeah, yeah, I'll get to that. Okay, I'll get sorry. to that. So, uh, <laughs> I'm <laughs> getting ahead of myself. <laughs> so when we talk about poverty, again, I think uh, different countries, they use different indicators and they have their own kind of uh, uh, yardsticks that they have designed to measure different kind of uh, financial capital present in a society or in an individual house. So in our country, when we talk about poverty, now a person may be considered living under poverty, but it will not mean that he will not have a shelter or he will not have a good food to eat. In our country, uh, in the past, uh, I think we used $1 per day as the, the the benchmark of poverty. And I think it has gone up to, I think three point something dollar per day. So if a person cannot earn $3.5 per day, then he's considered to be living under poverty. Yes, I have a huge issue with that anyways. <laughs> yeah, we all have. <laughs> I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's unfair for, I cannot like my I can speak in an Indian context. I can't speak for Bhutanese context, but for I think it is unfair for a country a more developed country, so to speak, in the West, um, to impose lines for poverty lines for countries like India. And our you know, Indian leaders do the same, but like three dollars a day also is not enough number one <laughs> so we need to increase our benchmark yeah we're measuring poverty too and three dollars also converts into um, money that people cannot understand but anyways there are issues in the poverty line as well that's what i yeah. want to say yes but sorry but uh, when we talk about people living under poverty i would say that uh, however primitive a shelter is, uh, if that person feels safe and if that person feels homely, I think he is good with that. Or however, I don't know, like however uh, poor, poorly balanced diet a person eats, if 
he is okay with it. I think that is okay with uh, the kind of food he's supposed to eat. So the kind when you talk about poverty here in our country, uh, many people say we don't have uh, any homeless people living in our country. Uh, that is also big. Actually, uh, actually, like uh, so many people would uh, have uh, gone homeless if not for uh, our His Majesty the Fifth King's initiative. He makes sure that each and every citizen in our country they have a safe house to live in. They have a good food to eat. And just to give you an example, just to give you an example, His Majesty has actually initiated, under his uh, royal leadership, he has initiated uh, multiple initiatives whereby he gifts citizens the land to work on, to do agriculture work. He gifts homes to people. He even sends uh, vitamin complex to elderly people with uh, elderly people like if 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 an elder in a community is more than 60 years old his majesty will send a vitamin uh, supplement every month wow and one thing is uh, during last two lockdowns in our country we have a lot of stray dog in our country his majesty not just ensured that every citizen go home every citizen go to the bed field uh, uh, with uh, the field belly, he also ensured each stray dog in a town not go to their bed starving. So he initiated a feeding program for dogs. So I think these are all because of this kind of wise and compassionate uh, initiate, uh, initiatives initiated by the, the wise leaders in our country. Uh, things are tending to uh, look better. Things are actually in uh, uh, in a good condition and the second thing now this brings uh, us to your second question about uh, the leadership and the altruism and compassion and all and also about uh, the, 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 the Buddhist values Buddhist belief systems uh, influencing our leadership talking about uh, uh, talking about uh, the kind of uh, belief system that we have first of all we have a legal institution in our country, and I know it is prevalent in almost all the countries. The, the legal system particularly is to give justice to the people. That is actually what we say. And the same thing is here in our country, but our legal system is strongly influenced by Buddhist beliefs. And particularly when we talk about Buddhist beliefs, something to do with the faith. The faith meaning the faith in elders, elders having faith in the younger ones, citizens having faith in their leaders, leaders having faith in their uh, citizens or their uh, uh, to to the, the the general public. And the second thing is uh, respect, love, and then compassion. Actually, everything is encompassed and uh, encapsulated in this compassion. And talking about our leadership, we can never say that uh, the, 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 the wisest kind of king will keep coming or the wisest kind of leaders will keep coming. But till now, hitherto we had the wisest kings. And from their activity, from their 
different initiatives. I have come to understand that our kings have always believed that if a person is speaking to another person through his mouth, it can only affect the mouth. If a person speaks from heart, it can only influence or make change in the heart. But if we speak to the world from our lifestyle, the way we live in. So I think it will bring in the, the real kind of positive impact in another person's life as well. So our leaders, they have always lived by examples. So I think that is, that is what actually uh, influences citizens to go for some kind of positive kind of lifestyle. Their thinking should be very positive. But we have our own share of problem. Uh, and then second, this brings to another question about the changes that I see in the community or changes that we see in the community. So we have our own share of problem. For example, uh, now when I was thinking to talk about uh, the changes that uh, have come with uh, the development from the economic point of view. So our country uh, initially was... Uh, I can say not very market oriented. We had society which was very feudalistic in nature. We had uh, a feudal lord and then he would have a lot of people working for him and he would provide uh, the necessity to, uh, to, to, to the workers that he had, he had. And it changed into the present kind of government system. Then it came to a monarchical system and this uh, slavery or slavery in any form was abolished by bringing in a very stringent, very straightforward, positive kind of uh, legal reforms. And then now our country has started to open up and then market economy is starting to, uh, starting to actually uh, delve into, like you mentioned, a very free market system. So we have imports coming in, we have exports. These are all material, uh, important export. And then our GDP is also increasing because uh, our country has started to manufacture certain goods and services. So in that way, first thing is there's a drastic change, uh, actually a very diametric change in economic uh, development, the economy of a country. And why are these changes, like what? why the, I'm guessing the need to, bring in certain economic changes have started happening before the pandemic. So yes. why, why the drive to diversify your economy? Mm -hmm. uh, so to continue from where I left, uh, so the economic change has happened. And, uh, but again, when we talk about economy for country, our economy was basically dependent on, uh, I can say three major uh, sectors. First one is agriculture, second one is uh, water resources and hydropower, and third one is tourism. We also have some other, uh, some other uh, sources of income, but uh, these are primary uh, sectors driving our economy. And uh, due to this pandemic now, we are also taught so many lessons. We are also taught so many lessons. For example, if you ask a Bhutanese about what is most important thing that we will need in terms of uh, 
uh, pandemic like this, like we had, he would not say a financial, uh, he would not say a money is something very important. He might say a social bond. How we support each other in a society, how we work together in a society, not just to uh, overcome or not just to, uh, yes, not just to overcome this pandemic situation, but also to support the moral of other person in a society. So in that way, I think when we talk about the resilience, it is not only something to do with uh, diversifying the sources of income, but it's also something to sticking with the, uh, the societal values that we have. So if you look at uh, uh, just a few days, a few days ago, I read a news uh, in, I think, one of the uh, newspapers. I think it was in the U.S. It, was, it, it is in the U.S. So it says, like, a success story of Bhutan fighting pandemic. <laughs> and then okay. when, I read, when I read through, there was nothing to do with the, 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 the financial capital that we have. He did not, the, the writer did not mention about uh, how robust our health uh, system is. But he mentioned about how robust, how resilient our society is, how we support each other, how uh, the love and care is ushered from the, 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 the throne, the leader, leaders of our country, and how uh, community people came together to support each other. Just to give an example, uh, during this pandemic, uh, our uh, th th these farmers, they uh, provided free vegetable. They provided with free this uh, uh, milk and all those farm produces to the government, so that government can uh, government can keep working on uh, combating this uh, pandemic. So these are some of the the val I think the values necessary, and I think these are some cultural and societal norms and values that uh, I feel. Uh, defines Bhutanese as a Bhutanese. But, but these you, are changing again. But do, do you think that the size of the population plays a huge role? And the, I was, and the homogenous, and the fact that you have a homogenous, relatively homogenous society. Yeah, I was actually, uh, I was going to uh, touch that as well in, uh, in uh, answering your next question about uh, uh, the diversity in religion in India, and you were talking about you were talking about China as well. Relatively, uh, our country is a very small country, and then we have a very small population, and uh, almost a ma majority of our population they are Buddhist, and they have very uh, unanimous homogeneous kind of uh, belief system, and it also acts as actually a unifying uh, uh, bond between the, the, the citizens. Uh, but again, when we talk about uh, uh, the belief system that we have, a uh, homogeneous kind of belief system that we have, we can also expect certain problems from this kind of society as well. One thing is, uh, one thing is, uh, uh, it's of something to do with uh, how we are raised at home the kind of education that we have in our country or uh, uh, at home. 
So I would say Bhutanis, in majority, they are uh, very receptive of uh, certain positive change or any uh, any uh, factor or any triggering uh, what can I say now influence that will bring if it brings positive changes. Buddhists are very receptive of that. So I think that could also be one reason. Definitely, definitely the, the, the smallness in uh, population as well as uh, as well as just like you mentioned uh, the, the homogeneity in belief could also be one reason. But there are I think there are so many other smaller uh, actors coming together here, and uh, and. Uh, Something to talk about uh, the kind of uh, uh, the, the principle that guides overall uh, development in our country. Uh, like I mentioned about gross national happiness earlier. So I think this gross national happiness has a very strong uh, role, influence in uh, the kind of development that we pursue and also in, uh, in the well-being of a society and an individual. For example, like uh, one of the uh, one of the domains of uh, gross national happiness is time use. Interesting. Who, who, who in the world as a policymaker would have thought about time use being one of the factor impacting well-being of a person? What, so, what does that mean? Like how you use your time with work and personal? Yes, how we use our time, but uh, something to do with uh, the amount of sleep you get. Wow, the kind of uh, the kind the, the total hour, total productive hour that you commit to. And when we talk about productive hour again, it can also uh, touch a certain uh, time invested in meeting your relatives, or having a social uh, or societal kind of uh, uh, activity. So, I think wow. almost every this. Nonsense are being touched by this uh, philosophy of GNH, but again, it is a question of if all the Buddhists uh, agree with, affirm to this philosophy. I think, uh, just like you mentioned, uh, that the field of philosophy needs a lot of thinking. I think it needs a lot of digestion yes. as well. <laughs> yes, yeah. it needs a lot of experimentation. So not all the people have the same level of uh, cognitive uh, capacity. So not all the people will think at the same level. Not all the people will have a positive kind of uh, uh, impact. Which is fine. Yeah, I mean, human beings are different, but like you said, I mean, it seems that it's important to build a strong, like, trampoline i would say so that if you fall there's something to catch and then and help you get back up again you know one of the things that i have noticed anywhere that i've been maybe other than scandinavian countries there's a there's a lack of trust between people government like if if you've been following american politics or you know america a little bit there's just a huge lack of trust between the government and the people and also with each other because they have never benefited from the government acting in their favor. So now in a pandemic, 
when you need the government to somehow get involved to either roll out a vaccine or ensure that people are not getting sick, like you need some form of government involvement. There's just no trust. So why would I listen to a guy sitting in a White House who has never done anything for me? You know, and but but when I talk to my friend in Norway, for example, many similarities between Bhutan and Norway, but also in many not. But there's a fundamental tr- uh, building of trust in in Norway that I that I witness from my conversations with her, and hence people are okay staying at home and listening to what the government is saying and wearing a mask and all of that. But anyways, you know, all, we're talking about all of these things to fundamentally understand like how you how your community is so in sync with nature and and protecting the environment i was listening to mr Sh- uh, i hope to pronounce his name correctly but mr sharing your previous premise yes i was listening to his a uh, few of his talks and so he's such a well-spoken man and one of the things that he said which you also mentioned was that Bhutan likes to think globally, but act locally and regionally. Um, and so what you said, you know, walk the talk and show other people by the life that you're living and through the policies, etc. So, um, so why don't we talk about like some of the environmental policies that you already have to ensure mm-hmm. that, you know, now that maybe uh, Bhutan tries to bring some changes in society they don't mm-hmm. affect the environment mm-hmm. mm, okay uh, to talk about uh, the, the kind of policies that we have environmental policies particularly that we have uh, that ensures uh, that ensures our country having uh, very rich natural resources i can say that uh, there are several, there are like various environmental policies. It has come in a form of act. It has come in a form of uh, regulation rules. But uh, uh, primarily to talk about uh, uh, the, the, the all-encompassing uh, policy, we have a constitution. And I don't know how many constitution, like in how many countries they have their constitution with a section on environment. Uh, in our constitution, we have a section or we have a chapter on environment. And the first clause under that environmental section makes each and every Bhutanese a uh, uh, caretaker or an honor of the environment that we live in. Wow. First thing. And the second thing is, it also imposes our government or all generations to come hereafter uh, to at least maintain 60% of our country uh, with the forest cover. And today we have around 72% of our uh, country's land under forest cover. And from this 72%, around 51% of this forest cover, they are protected. They are in the form of protected area or sanctuaries or in the form of uh, resource, uh, uh, natural reserves. So, and another very unique thing about uh, the kind of protected area that we have is uh, all the protected areas that we have in our country, 
which can sum up to around 11 in total. They are connected by something called biological corridors. And this biological corridor ensure, corridors ensure the free movement of uh, these uh, animals yeah. from one, uh, one protected area to another protected area. And the researchers have shown uh, that these biological corridors are very functional. So, for example, a tiger that was seen above uh, 200 meters above the sea level was also seen at a place which is like 4,300 meters above the sea level. So, in that way, these biological corridors are very functional. And these are some mandates that we have in our constitution. And because of these mandates, a very strong and very clear kind of instructions mentioned in our constitution, we also have a very robust kind of environmental policy system in our country. And the spearheading uh, institution that we have in our country, we call it National Environmental Commission. And actually, National Environmental Commission takes care of almost everything related to environmental policies, development, and uh, conservation. And we, uh, and we have uh, different kinds of policies. For example, we have policies related to waste management. We have policies related to water conservation. We also have policies related to forestry and agriculture. We also have policies related to biodiversity conservation. We have policies related to mines and minerals. And we also have, one interesting thing is we also have policies related to health and safety. And in 2012, we also enacted a national strategy and action plan for, uh, for low carbon development, so which ensures that our development should be based on low carbon, but uh, enhancing the resilience uh, in the face of a changing climate. So these are some of the policies that we have. But, uh, but having a policy is uh, not enough, I can say. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also have a very robust kind of framework uh, or some kind of mandatory action or a circular kind of framework which demands mandatory action. For example, this National Environmental Commission of our country should develop laws and policies, but after developing, they are also responsible for creating environmental awareness, so which is very important. Mm -hmm. And another thing is, when they have developed a policy, a regulation, or a law, they will also have to mainstream it into a developmental, a practical, practically mainstream it into a developmental activity. For example, by giving EIA clearance, by having a very stringent kind of monitoring system and all. And sorry, what's an also, EIA clearance? Uh, in, uh, sorry, environmental impact assessment. So any kind of development activity that happens in our country should have environmental impact assessment. So which will assess a visible impact on environment, which will assess a visible impact on the society. So these are some kind of mandates uh, that uh, National Environmental Commission's uh, Environmental Commission should uh, uphold. And they are also, for example, like uh, responsible for spearheading coordination and participation. Or they will have to bring in people from all the walks, all the walk of life, like they'll have to bring in all the stakeholders and then 
ask their view, talk about what they want from this particular project. So these are some kind of mandates mm -hmm. which uh, this institution will have to uphold. And this kind of, I think, mandate, this kind of very clear-cut uh, framework has enabled uh, any developmental activity in our country to uh, have assist, uh, have assist uh, this en uh, visible environmental issues. Mm -hmm. And if the negative impact from this particular developmental activity, negative impact can not only be in terms of financial uh, term, it can also be in terms of social gain, or it can be in terms of health and safety of a community. So if this negative impact uh, is more than the positive impact, intended positive impact a country uh, or that particular project is going to bring, then National Environmental Commission, they will uh, ask that particular developmental uh, development project to stop. And mm -hmm. this kind of uh, authority has always actually helped in uh, helped in maintaining uh, the, the pristine environment that we have. For so, example, for, ex for example, a, nation, a national highway was supposed to uh, be constructed, which went through the national park. And when they did EIA, I think uh, it had a lot of negative impact. So they did not let that national highway uh, be like develop, uh, be constructed in that particular area. So these are some kind of things, uh, uh, things that we have in terms of this environmental policy. And I think, uh, I think it does, yes. Matt. Like what you said about just having policies in place is not enough because I think many countries, I know for a fact that here we in Canada, environmental assessments are, are conducted regularly when, you know, when we're constructing either pipelines or infrastructure in environmentally vulnerable areas. And also in India, you know, I'm, I'm 100% sure we have environmental assessments, but they're not they they are not taken seriously maybe and things happen despite those assessments saying that we should not be constructing in ecologically vulnerable areas mm -hmm. i think it's it, it, it's definitely not enough to have policies and maybe the fact that you have had decades maybe not even you've always had um a relationship with the environment that has mm -hmm. led to a highway being turned down because it will mm -hmm. impact negatively impact your biodiversity because yes. like i'm because like i mentioned these structures exist in other countries as well but they are not fallen through but one of yeah. the things that i wanted to ask you was about waste management because while it is very important to have um a good forest cover to sequester carbon, of course, otherwise they will release that carbon. It is also important to have a balanced pattern of consumption and how you're disposing that. Yes. So what is, like, can you talk a bit about the consumption patterns mm -hmm. of Bhutanese people and then also what are the waste management policies in place? Uh, before talking about uh, the waste management, just to continue from a point that you left about uh, uh, the, the connectedness that we have with the nature. I think I forgot to mention about how connected we are with our environment here in Bhutan. Uh, 
so uh, actually uh, this thing or this this particularly a positive uh, influence comes from the buddhist belief that we have just like i mentioned so we respect uh, each tree every tree we respect every stream we respect uh, the life any kind of life form in a given area and i think i think one thing is uh, about uh, the respect that we have the kind of trust that we have in our environment the reverence and the trust it also have a huge impact on uh, uh, impact on uh, enabling environmental conservation activity for example in the place where i come from i come from eastern side of our country and in the place where i come from uh, starting march april uh, we are not allowed to uh, climb a hill or we are not allowed to go for hiking into uh, the, the, the the higher ridges and mountains saying that we we call it a rhythm we call it a rhythm rhythm meaning re is a mountain dumb meaning it's enclosed it's closed so we are not allowed to go into that kind of uh, places saying that uh, if you go there it will disturb ecological uh, uh, ecological i mean uh, ecosystem of that particular area ecological system of that particular area and then they have this belief entrenched with the uh, the kind of uh, uh, belief that they have one can be like they uh, take these mountains for a residence of this uh, celestial uh, deities and all so if we go there they say like we desecrate it or they say like it, it will bring some kind of negative impact on the society by uh, manifesting in the form of crop failure or untimely rain or something like that so these are some of the belief systems deeply entrenched uh in this uh, nature the, the the natural environment that we live in it's just <laughs> this is amazing because if something like this happened here i can say that people will will say it's an infringement of my freedom yeah. <laughs> that i'm not being allowed to go on a map to, <laughs> you know so it's amazing that that people don't re- rebel against so like these uh just telling people to do something and people are not rebelling against it because there's a fundamental understanding that this is not about my freedom but it's about protecting something bigger than you yeah i think it, it's something to it has something to do with uh, uh sacrificing individual want to the societal need or something like that wow so and uh, now getting back to your question about uh, the west management definitely i'm very sure when you travel around the world i'm very sure you have you would have seen in almost yeah not almost in every country people their dream is to become or their dream is to achieve a lifestyle of an american or i don't know maybe i can i would like to have a very fancy car i would like to have a very fancy house and drive a fancy car and then i'm very sure like almost everyone will have this kind of dream so we have an american dream and that is actually where problem starts coming so even in our country although our country is a developed underdeveloped country people so are here the, the consumption <laughs> the consumption rate has gone up the consumption rate has gone up and like people they have become very consumer, consumeristic in nature and the sad thing is almost every goods and services that we consume comes from india or some other country <laughs> i'm not surprised so 
in that way the problem is like when everyone wants to consume more just like you mentioned uh, when everyone wants to consume more then we produce a lot of waste and then the waste production has actually it has gone up in last past decade and then like our landfills they overflowing with waste and then and then uh, we did not have a very robust kind of waste management system in the past but uh, with uh, the help of uh, uh, with the help of our government uh, and also with uh, seeking advice from different countries like india japan and some other developed countries we have actually uh, implemented a very integrated kind of waste management system so we also have a waste management act uh, we also have a regular rules related to waste management and then actually these waste management uh, rules they define what should be done and everything that is necessary to manage a waste and you see a lot uh, of plastic floating in 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 simple i would okay i don't want to compare it but uh, our sit, our towns and our towns and villages they are actually compared they are relatively clean we you might see if you visit our country you might see uh, plastics or garbages uh, litter uh, in some nooks and corners but in 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 open space like a road pedestrian network you not see plastic and loitering and then one very interesting thing is like more and more buddhists they are uh, taking initiative to clean their own living space and it has always been uh, inspired by uh, the his majesty his majesty the king and the queen they have always been a very graceful very gracious uh, patron of environmental conservation and they have always uh, propounded saying that uh, the space we live in should be clean although we have uh, waste management issues although the, the the consumption pattern is becoming more and more uh, voracious the 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 waste management system i can say is in place but there are so many things to do there are like a lot of rooms to improve of course i mean there is always scope to improve one of the things that i wanted to ask you was that i think do you think that bhutan feels that it has a a role to play to make sure that other countries are acting mm-hmm. because are are acting in ways that are good for the environment because bhutan will suffer if others don't start acting right yeah, like, i was am i am i correct in believing that because of the you know vulnerable not vulnerable but because you're literally your home is in a mountain mm-hmm. and you know the so called third pole then obviously if we don't start acting your neighbors especially then bhutan is going to you know suffer even though you haven't necessarily done anything to contribute to global warming and climate change yes i'll start uh, by citing an example of a very sad unfortunate incidents in uttarakhand i'm very sure you would have heard about it yes prime prime example of what can what is happening yeah if we don't uh, start acting although a very small country we have like more than 2000 glacier lakes in our country 2000 glacier lakes that we have in our country 
these glacial lakes are very vulnerable in the face of changing climate and uh, and uh, the, the the governmental institution in our country which deals with this meteorology and weather and the climate they have already uh, identified 15 potentially dangerous global uh, glacial lakes in our country and these glacial lakes which were not very dangerous maybe i don't know, like two three decades ago is actually becoming more and more dangerous with uh, passing time it's like a time bomb i don't know when it's going to explode but it's like a time bomb and if you have to talk about uh, who is responsible for uh, uh, increasing the severity of danger in all this uh, uh, potentially like vulnerable glacial lakes in our country Buddhists would not Buddhists would say like we did not do anything as we are a very small country and then we are we are just like we mentioned like carbon negative and then and then uh, and then uh, we have a neighboring countries like producing a huge amount of uh, 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 greenhouse gases and then these greenhouse gases they are transboundary they, they do not need pass, passport to cross our border so in that way uh, in just next uh, 20 years uh, the glo- if the global temperature goes increases by 1 degree centigrade the sci- uh, scientific researchers have uh, uh, shown that the the, the increase in temperature in the Himalayan region will be little more than two, two, two degrees centigrade. So it looks like our third pole is going to warm faster than the rest of the globe. So in that way, we are in a very critical uh, juncture. To, uh, to, to uh, mitigate it or to adapt to it, or maybe just be as we are today, complacent, and maybe face the challenges when it happens. So, and uh, coming to your uh, problem, uh, coming to your uh, question about uh, the, the, the problem or, or some kind of issues related to climate change uh, from other countries. Actually, like Bhutan has always been outspoken. We have always been outspoken and we have always uh, uh, shouted out loud to the world saying that we should do something. No we one has listened, though. But we are a small country, and then, then we do not have a financial power, economic power. We do not have a military power. And then who would like to listen to a very poor, tiny nation? I want you to stop saying that Bhutan is poor, because <laughs> <laughs> people will conjure images of poverty in Bhutan that, you know, from what you were telling me, that that does that kind of poverty does not exist. So no, we are not going to say that Bhutan is poor <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, it's true that Bhutan unfortunately has little political clout because it's not an economic yeah. powerhouse and all of that, um, which is unfortunate because if you are doing what other countries are hoping to achieve, then one would assume that they would listen to you and and. You know, especially I think that countries surrounding you in in our in the South Asian region or the Asian region have they have reason to listen to Bhutan because 
actually the world, in fact, has reason to listen and start acting because two of the most populated countries are living in the Himalayan region. So if our glaciers start melting and we have more disasters like we've had in Uttarakhand, then naturally it's going to affect our farmers, it's going to affect our food produce, and naturally that, that will lead to um, climate refugees. And then when those climate refugees start coming to countries like Canada, which is the fastest warming country, but mm-hmm. it's going to open up space, habitable space in Canada, then those refugees will naturally flock to countries where uh, there's more space. And that is when countries will start, that'll cause political destabilization, I'm assuming. And yeah. then people will start acting because it, uh, it affects their political um, environment. So we actually have a lot of reasons to listen to this tiny country if we, if we want to. I, I, I'm very optimistic. If, if, if not for logic, they should listen for emotion. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There, there, there are reasons to like reasons for listening to our country, but uh, if they don't go by reasons, then they should feel pity on us at least. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am not that optimistic that they will feel pity. You know what? I say this because, and, I, and I'm stealing words from Mr. Sering Thugge. Uh, I'm stealing words from him because he, uh, in one of his talk TED Talks, he uh, he showed us a picture of how the Maldives government had a meeting, a cabinet meeting underwater. Underwater, yeah. And he showed us that picture. And then he showed how the Nepalese government had a cabinet meeting literally uh, at the base camp of the Himalayas. And yes. he said, when I looked at those pictures... I, did, I, I saw that it was political theater, but I frankly didn't care that uh, what was happening because it didn't affect me. But then he mm-hmm. said, however, when I learned that the glaciers are melting at a rapid speed and that will affect my country, I realized that I have to care about the Maldives and I have to care about uh, Nepal. And, and that's when he said the line of, we must act regionally so that... Mm-hmm. Um, where ta- everyone is taking care of one another. So I think knowing how much we know about Bhutan, which is little, it is also hard to take pity because it, people are so far away from your country, you know, but, but this is, I guess, where awareness and education comes into play, where we need to understand how everything is interconnected. Like, unfortunately, nature is, not unfortunately, nature is so interconnected where um, a, a glacier melting in in South Asia will have an effect in some way on on Canada, not yeah. now, but maybe in the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are so interconnected, and these connections are the kind of bond that we share is very strong. The influence is very strong, so that is why we always believe that uh, if you do something today, it's going to ripen into some kind of fruit tomorrow, or maybe in days to come and uh, this can be taken to understand how we are connected naturally and how we are connected economically as well i think uh, this mm-hmm. pandemic has uh, taught us a lot of lessons about how connected we are economically and also naturally and uh, just like you mentioned uh, i think it's time uh, 
that each I would like to refer to us as a global citizen. Mm-hmm. So we should uh, we should uh, keep aside the nationalities. We should keep aside the kind of uh, uh, belief that we hold onto. I think it's time we come together to at least understand what is happening in the world in terms of uh, uh, this climate change or any other environmental issues, which actually are expounded by science saying that it's really happening. And Definitely. start acting. So I think, uh, I think uh, uh, a small drop of water can make a mighty ocean. And then I think that is how our small action can also uh, benefit the, the planet altogether. It's not just, uh, it's not just Buddhists trying to uh, become uh, remain carbon neutral or carbon negative in times to come. Mm-hmm. It's not just uh, India and China trying to switch for renewable energy. I think it's it uh, it's individual responsibility to understand these environmental issues and figure out the causes of these environmental issues and then start acting on this uh, these causes. I always refer to these environmental issues like climate change just as a symptom. It's not a disease, I think. It's a symptom. Definitely. This is something very different. So, wow, I love that. You're definitely on something. It's, it, when you were talking, I feel that the reason Bhutan is the way it is is because it's a lifestyle for you. It's not something that you're that you have just started doing, obviously. It's always been like that. And I think in order for people to start combating the disease of climate change, uh, sorry, the symptoms of climate change, I think I agree with you is, is if we change our lifestyle and, and we can, you know, create changes for the long term and not just, oh, we have uh, limited our warming to 1.5 and now we can go back to the, the way things were. Mm-hmm. So the, the the things that we were discussing about, uh, like uh, the the policies related to environmental conservation, or the kind of governance system that exists in different society, or the beliefs and uh, the cultural cultural and traditional uh, customs that we have in a society. I think these are just uh, these are just a pivot to leverage uh, uh, the individual action. I think the the primary primary role lies in how individuals look at uh, our natural environment and how we look at or how we dream of our own future. So I, I just like I mentioned, I'm a teacher, and I always make a point to ask my students what kind of future you would like to see, and to uh, and uh, not to my surprise. Everyone wants to have an American life <laughs> lifestyle, and that is very uh, uh, disheartening. <laughs> yes, uh, unfortunately, America has done a great job of selling its soft power to the world, and everyone wants a piece of the American dream. When I say American dream, again, I'm not accusing America, but I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We can accuse them. <laughs> Yeah, I just think we have so much to learn from 
baton and the way things are done. When I was researching, I was, I'm, I'm still from our conversation, I'm mind blown as to how so many things function. Um, maybe it, uh, it has to do with the size of the population. Maybe it doesn't. Mm -hmm. I don't know because there are other similarly sized countries that are not doing as, that are not as healthy as you are. So clearly there's something going on um, ancient wisdom that has survived and continues to help you thrive. One thing that I want to ask you lastly before we wrap up is mm -hmm. how does the media in Bhutan report on climate change, whether that is in Bhutan itself or globally? And then how, mm -hmm. how do people react to it? Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, the, the media that we have in our country uh, uh, I can see these are uh, these uh, media houses are in their juvenile, uh, juvenile stage. They are developing, <laughs> and uh, I think they're starting to become more uh, robust. And uh, coming to the environmental uh, reporting, um, I think in almost all the uh, media outlet, it can be a print media or any other kind of media. They do report on environmental issues that we have in our country, as well as uh, the report about environmental issues from around the world. And, uh, uh, and our Bhutanese uh, people, they are, just like I mentioned, they're very receptive. They will listen to it and then they will always think about it and then uh, they will question and then some they even go to extent of doing research and then coming up with uh, some kind of discussion to bring uh, forth the solutions to these issues. Uh, I think uh, uh, one thing that uh, media uh, does uh, in bringing positive influence is they report, they not just report about uh, uh, the environmental issues, they also report about some of the good practices from around the world. And then wow. they are actually uh, uh, they are actually a very important uh, uh, pertinent uh, uh, influence in creating environmental awareness. So our uh, people living in our rural communities, they know it's not healthy to litter. So if you go to uh, some of the remotest places in our country, you will see a very simple but very effective kind of waste management, waste management uh, system adopted. And these are all thanks to the kind of uh, 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 environmental awareness that we have uh, supported by these media houses and also uh, education system that we have in our country. And uh, going back to what we discussed earlier about uh, uh, other nations having to listen to our country, Bhutan, <laughs> I would like to say, uh, I, I would like to put it here, that we have a magic recipe. And if you want to know that, then you'll have to listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. If you were to tell us the magic recipe in one line to wrap things uh -huh. up, what would it be? Uh, that would be being mindful. I love it. <laughs> Anyways, Kinley, thank you so much for this conversation. I think 
I, I honestly hope that when I put it out into the world, like whoever listens to it will benefit just from learning about how Bhutan is doing things. I think there's so much to learn for leaders and individuals to see um, how you are living such a community-oriented, one-with-the-nature environment lifestyle that's respectful and full of compassion and um, altruistic. These are all like aspirations, great aspirations for anyone to imbibe at the individual level and also at the country and global level. So um, I will do my best to put it out there. And I really hope that, you know, people just listen and learn more about Bataan because we don't hear about it a lot, but I think maybe going forward, we should because there's so much to learn from, from you. Thank you very much for having me here. It was a pleasure. And one last thing, it's an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. So when we discussed about uh, the gross national happiness, actually Bhutan has always been very close with uh, Canada. The second gross national happiness conference happened in uh, Nova Scotia in Canada. So, really? Yeah. Bhutan I had has no always idea. been a big fan of Canada. And then the last thing, just like you mentioned about the aspirations, we believe it's very important to make aspiration in any occasions. So the last uh, thing I would like to say is... Uh, I hope the people around the world listens to uh, this very rustic Himalayan gypsy (laughs) 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 trying to blow his own trumpet about things uh, uh, that are happening. I don't know if it is happening really here, (laughs) but I I hope uh, people listen to this positively and I hope this talk uh, makes some positive, uh, bring some positive impact in any kind of listener that comes across this talk. I'm, I'm very thankful to you for having me here. And uh, uh, I would like to say that you should continue doing this. You are doing a wonderful job. Uh, thank you so much, Kinley. I will just say that uh, you are definitely uh, not, we're not blowing your trumpet. I think it was, I, I feel that an hour and a half passed just like you know in the blink of an eye and we can go on and on and there's so many concepts that i want to touch on with you but uh it was just such an interesting conversation so i'm very glad that you know serendipity or chance or coincidence (laughs) introduced each other um introduced us to each other and it was just a wonderful conversation and i hope we keep in touch because there's so many things that i want to learn from you so you might hear from me time to time on whatsapp and i will be asking you questions about how Bhutan is doing this or that or what you think of things thank you very much all right folks well that was the first episode of 2021 i hope this conversation with kim lee just empowered you to believe that solutions are possible no matter where you are it's about coming together and acting mindfully as Kinley said and acting from a place of goodwill for all that's goodwill for our fellow brothers and sisters our fellow citizens community members but also the environment i think one of the main things that i took away from my conversation with Kinley is the fact that bhutanese people are all they all feel responsible for their environment they're all caretakers and it's a part of their constitution and we need to start 
becoming mindful of how closely interconnected we are with one another and with the environment and the fact that nature gives so much to us and that life on earth has only been made possible because of the different chemical, biological factors that came together at the right time and place for us to thrive. I was listening to Joe Rogan's latest episode with Elon Musk and he said that that there was life on Mars at one point, that it did have water and flowing lakes, but now they're all dried up. So we should feel very lucky that we're living on a planet that's just the right distance from the sun and it has just the right amount of gravity and just the right amount of atmosphere to protect us and just the right temperature that made uh, bacteria come alive and where we are now. So we should definitely feel grateful for the Earth that we have and but we also must remember that we have to start acting now because things are changing. And as Kinley and I spoke about in the podcast, the glacier burst that happened in Uttarakhand, in India, is a prime, prime example of how the climate is changing and our glaciers are melting, our sea is, our oceans are getting warmer, and all of this is going to affect each and every one of us across the world. But we must think globally and act locally and act regionally if I'm to steal words from Bhutan's previous prime minister. So I hope that all of you are feeling empowered by this episode because Kinley is positive and as am I. Things can change if we start acting. So thank you so much for lending me your pair of ears. I'm very grateful that you came back and listened to this episode. If you want to chat online, then I am available on Twitter at underscore nth dimension and if you would like to support this podcast then do consider supporting us on patreon till next time folks stay safe and peace